So we ask you, Lord, to be with us during this meeting. Amen. Amen. Well, let's see. First up on the agenda is an update on the winter retreat. Gab, you want to take it from here? Love to. So this year's winter retreat, the theme is getting cozy with God. And we've got a brand new venue. It's a beautiful lodge in the White Mountains. And for this weekend, we've kind of built into it a lot more unstructured time. So, you know, people can take their Bibles and go sit by the fire. Almost like going on a romantic getaway with the Lord. <laughs> so what do you guys think? I, Liz, you, you look like you want to say something. Me? No. I mean, it's not my perfect retreat, but... Um... Hey, I'm not a pastor. You guys get paid to come up with this stuff, and I really shouldn't be critical. Well, it's not about being a pastor or... Gabby, that sounds fantastic. I can't wait to have some cocoa by the fire. <laughs> Shall we move along? Wait, wait, wait. My concern is it sounds a bit, well, feminine. A romantic getaway with the Lord. Feminine? Well, well... What would you have us do on a retreat? Go deer hunting? I'm just saying, will it appeal to the whole congregation? You know, I don't think there's a retreat topic that will ever appeal to the whole congregation. You know, this is exactly what I was afraid of. What's that supposed to mean? Anytime I present an idea, Jerry, you don't like it. No, that's not true. That's definitely true. I think the venue sounds great. But if... I were a new believer, I would find this really daunting. You know, I, I wouldn't know what to do with all of the unstructured, quiet time. Who's the speaker this year? Oh, well, actually, we're not hiring an outside speaker. It just didn't fall within the budget this year. Didn't fall within the budget? How much is this fireplace costing us? I thought we approved a budget increase this year. That must have gone toward the cocoa. You know what? If you'd excuse me, I need to go get a drink of water. People, I think we all need to be a little more sensitive with Gabby. And what if there are issues with the retreat? We all just keep quiet? There'll be a retreat next year. So who cares about this one? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time at the end of this meeting to pray about it and we can talk about the winter retreat next week, okay? What's next? Well, as our worship planning team reviewed the rough cut of that video this week, we were all squirming in our seats <laughs> because we've been in conversations like that. Not with each other, of course, but other teams. <laughs> and the truth is you've been in conversations like that as well, haven't you? In a conference room somewhere or around the dinner table at night, at a town meeting, perhaps, or maybe a phone call with a partner or a friend who has let you down or hurt you somehow. Most of us aren't comfortable with conversations like this. We don't like it when there's tension in the room. We don't like it when people disagree with us or accuse us of things or try to push us around. Things get said that shouldn't get said. Feelings get hurt. Relationships get strained, sometimes to the breaking point. We walk away frustrated and disappointed and wondering what went wrong and if there's any way to get it right again. Nobody likes conflict. 
But if human beings are involved, there's going to be conflict. C.S. Lewis put it pretty simply. Community always comes down to real people. So we've been talking about community this fall. We are looking at it in the book of Philippians in the New Testament. We are learning the marks of true biblical community. Now, we all like the idea of community. We certainly like the idea of coming together. The problem, of course, is that we are human beings coming together. And it always involves real people. And real people sometimes disagree with us. Real people sometimes uh, disappoint us. Occasionally, they will drive us crazy. Real people, like the ones sitting around you this morning. So we shouldn't be surprised to find there's conflict happening even in this church in Philippi. This church that Paul loves, perhaps like no other church. This church that's so alive with spiritual vitality, so committed to doing God's work in the world. But there's conflict. So we're going to take a second look at this passage we began last week. It's a passage in which Paul reminds us that we are whole people and we are whole communities. We are not just physical beings. We are intellectual and spiritual and emotional and relational beings as well. And in order to be a whole person or a whole community, we have to attend to all these aspects of human experience. So there's more to community than just being in the same room with each other. More to community than studying the Bible and learning things together. More to community even than praying and worshiping together. We are emotional beings, we learned last week. We feel sadness, glad, gladness, joy, grief, guilt, shame, all those things. And we need to learn to attend to those emotions and, and to, to express them to each other and receive them from each other. We talked last week about emotional health. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the fifth dimension of human experience, the, the relational side of things, relational health. What we're going to learn is that conflict can be either a pit or a path. It can leave us in an uncomfortable place like the one we just witnessed, or it can lead us to a better place. And you'll see what I mean as we make our way through the passage this morning. So let's go again to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. We're going to be focusing in particular on conflict in a church setting, but most of what we talk about, the principles we talk about, they'll apply to conflict anywhere you find it, at home, in the workplace, or in the wider world around you. In fact, I'm going to suggest as we go forward that you have a particular conflict in mind, something you've been through recently, maybe something you're in the middle of right now. Now, hopefully that person you're in conflict with isn't sitting next to you this morning, but if they are, no throwing elbows, okay? <laughs> I want you to listen for what the Lord might say to you about how you handle conflict. Church, home, work, whatever. So Philippians chapter 4, 2 through 3. Uh, before we go any further, I should just give a quick, I want to give a quick shout out to the Watertown campus. They celebrated their one-year anniversary this weekend with a harvest fest. <laughs> Way to go, Watertown. So they had the place all decked out. Something like 800 people came through yesterday and got a taste of life at Grace Chapel in Watertown. The volunteer team did a great job. So it was a huge success. If you missed it, you missed a chance to dunk your favorite senior pastor. Okay, so come back next year and you can get in on it, all right? 
All right, let's, uh, let's get to Philippians chapter 4. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, as we said last week, we don't know a lot about these two women. It's the only time they're mentioned in Scripture. What we do know is that they were active members of the church at Philippi. Paul obviously holds them in high regard. He describes them as fellow workers who've contended at my side. What we think he means by that is that they stood with him in times of persecution. So these would seem to be spiritually mature women who have significant roles and deep faith in the life of this church. The second thing we know about them is that they're having a conflict of some sort. We don't know what it is, but it must have been pretty substantial for Paul to call it out like this and mention them by name. Again, imagine me speaking on conflict and naming two of you and saying, get together and agree in the Lord. So something must have been going on here. And so you have these women, spiritually mature women, growing in their faith, committed to the life of the church, and yet they're having a disagreement. As we learned earlier, if human beings are in the room, conflict is inevitable. Now, whenever we're dealing with conflict, whether it's in the church or, or anywhere, for that matter, it's always important to identify the real issue, because sometimes other issues get in the way. And in the church, if there's conflict, typically it falls into one of four categories of church conflict. It could be a doctrinal conflict, some major or minor doctrine of the faith that's being disputed. It could be a sin issue. Someone is behaving in, a, in an ungodly or hurtful kind of a way. It could be a personality conflict. Two individuals who just for some reason rub each other the wrong way. Or it could be some practical matter. Strategy or finance or the color of the carpet or the volume of the music. Something practical. So it's important to identify what the conflict is really all about because it's very easy for, for doctrinal conflicts to masquerade as personality conflicts or to turn a practical matter into a sin issue. Let's take a, for instance, let's think about the, the worship wars, so-called worship wars that tore apart many churches for a long time. Those, those worship conflicts are really about personality and practice. They're really about style and preference and tradition and culture and those kinds of things. And when we understand that and we work through them, they can lead us to a deeper understanding of each other and to a richer, fuller experience of worship. But when we take those worship differences and we make them doctrinal issues or sin issues, well, that leads us to a very dark place. When, when we uh, uh, accuse someone who worships differently of, 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 of having a wrong theology of worship, that, that's hurtful. When we make judgments about another person's motives or practice of worship, oh, they're just entertaining or they're performing or they're inauthentic, those are hurtful kinds of conversations. So remember what the issue is really about and stay focused on it. Now, in this case, Euodia and Syntyche, it doesn't appear to be a doctrinal dispute. If it was, Paul would have set the record straight right there in front of everybody, obviously. 
It doesn't appear to be a sin issue. Or Paul would have called them out on it. He's done that in other letters and called people by name for issues of sin. So we have to assume it's either a personality conflict between two strong personalities or individuals, or it's a conflict over some practical matter in the life of the church. The interesting thing is that Paul doesn't take sides in this conflict. In fact, he's very careful to treat both of these women equally. He mentions each of them by name, specifically. He affirms each of them as fellow workers. He calls on each of them to respond properly. So apparently, Paul is less concerned about the issue here than he is with the effect that this conflict is having on the rest of the church. It's disrupting their unity and their vitality. It's robbing them of joy. See, the problem with conflict is that it's never neutral. You can't ignore it. Joseph Grenny is a, a leading writer on matters of, uh, of business and practice and organization, and he was a speaker at the Leadership Summit this past year, and I remember one of his lines. Grenny says, you either talk it out or you act it out. When you come to conflict, either you're going to talk it out and get to a better place, or you're going to act it out badly in some way. That's the issue with conflict. If you don't deal with it, it doesn't go away. It smolders beneath the surface. And when the conditions are right, when there's a spark of controversy or a wind of discontent, it bursts into flame and people say and do things that are hurtful. Con conflict is either a pit or a path. And Paul doesn't want this Philippian church or our church to go down that pit. So I'd like to bring back a term that we introduced a few weeks ago and his subject here. It's the word pseudo-community. It's a word coined by M. Scott Peck, well-known psychiatrist and author of a decade or two ago. And I know, I know, pseudo-community is misspelled, okay? So we don't need to disagree about that. We agree that is a misspelling of the word. We'll roll with it. Um, and Peck uses this word pseudo-community to describe people who have, who have come together around some common interest, some common pursuit, they're enjoying each other, they're developing a life together, they're even doing some good work. But they haven't yet worked through their differences. They haven't done the hard work of confronting the things that might divide them and worked through them to get to a place of real honesty, real trust, real synergy as a group. And so that's the difference between pseudo-community and true community. So here in Philippi, I think that's what's happening. We have a community of people who seem to love and enjoy each other. They're off to a good start. They're growing spiritually. They're doing good work in the world. But there are unresolved issues among them. Factions and divisions, Paul mentions them throughout the letter, that are robbing them of joy and threatening their life together. So Paul calls on these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and he pleads with them. He pleads with them, come together over this conflict. Find a way to true community. He doesn't just plead with the two women. He pleads with the rest of the community. He calls on a loyal yoke fellow. We're not sure who that is. But someone in the church, he says, come alongside these women so that you and Clement and everybody else can discover the community that God has in mind for you as a church. And what God had in mind for the church at Philippi, he has in mind for Grace Chapel as well. We can never be the church God intends us to be. We can never be the community we long to be 
if we're not able to face and resolve our differences, our disagreements, our conflicts. As I said a couple of weeks ago, I, don't, I can't think of any particular conflicts that are threatening the life and vitality of our church right now, and I'm grateful for that. But I know that if we continue to grow deeper and closer and wider, if we continue to answer God's call on our lives and on our church, we're, we're going to run into conflict. There are going to be times we, we disappoint each other, we disagree with each other, and maybe drive each other crazy from time to time. And so learning to find our way through that to a better place is essential to the life of our church. We don't want to end up like that team we watched in the video a few moments ago. They landed in a very uncomfortable and unpleasant place. That's called pseudo-community, and no one likes being there. So how do we get from pseudo-community to true community? The challenge is that it's not a simple, straight-line journey. In fact, according to M. Scott Peck, the journey from pseudo-community to true community takes us through some very challenging terrain. According to Peck, there are four phases of community building. The first one we've talked about, pseudo-community. We enjoy being together around some common passion or interest, but we haven't yet worked through and faced our differences yet. Now, there's nothing wrong with pseudo-community. It's how every relationship gets started. It just hasn't matured yet. Think of pseudo-community like a first date, or maybe a second or a third date. You're getting to know someone. You're finding you have common interests. You enjoy the same things. You appreciate each other's personality. You, you have a, a better time when you're with that person than with you're not. They begin to bring some good things out of you, and the relationship's off to a great start. But by the fourth or fifth or sixth date, you're going to find some things that, interests that you don't have in common. And you're not always going to appreciate the differences in their personality. And if that relationship's going to go anywhere, you have to press through those differences and get to a place of real understanding of and appreciation for each other. That's true community. And so that's the second stage on this journey. And Peck calls the second stage, accurately, chaos. <laughs> chaos. That's what typically happens when people enter into conflict for the first time. Now, I heard Bill Hybels speak on this years and years ago, and he used an expression that has stuck with me, and I think it works really well. He called this stage the tunnel of chaos, the tunnel of chaos. And tunnel's a good word because it's, it's dark, it's cramped, it's uncomfortable, and it's unpredictable, and you don't know how long it's going to go on. If you've ever been stuck in the Callahan Tunnel in traffic on your way to the airport, you know how uncomfortable that feeling is. And it's uncomfortable because when, when, we, when we enter into conflict, most of us have some unhealthy ways of handling conflict. We may have learned them from the families we grew up in. They may be expressions of our typical personality or our cultural background, but, but just listen to some of the ways and see if any of them describe you. Some people handle conflict by escalating it escalating it. They increase the intensity, the emotion, the discomfort, the tension in the room. They raise their voice, they scowl, they pound the table, they, they make intimidating gestures, they threaten, they accuse, they get aggressive. Escalating is what Jerry was doing in the drama we watched a few moments ago. As he challenged Gabby's plans for the retreat, 
with, with some harsh words and, and some intimidating body language. He increased the tension in the room, escalating. Let's take a rather stereotypical but pretty familiar scenario, maybe in a home setting. Let's say that you're coming home late for work, late for dinner from work. So you walk into the house late for dinner, and your spouse or your roommate says, you're late. And you say back, traffic was terrible. And the spouse or roommate says, you could have called. And you say, I tried to call, but no one picked up the phone. And the other one says, that's because I was busy cooking your dinner. <laughs> well, I wasn't exactly joyriding, I was at work. Yeah, well, you're always at work, you're never home anymore. What do you mean? I took a day off two weeks ago. Sound familiar? <laughs> Recognize that? The reason I'm so familiar with that is I've read books about those kinds of conversations. <laughs> That's called escalating. One of the ways we escalate is by, by villainizing the other person. We, instead of thinking the best of them, we think the worst of them. We attribute bad motives. You're late because you don't care about me. You never turn your reports in on time because you're a lazy employee. If you hold position X, Y, and Z on some particular doctrine, you must not believe the Bible to be God's word. You see, if we can convince ourselves that someone else is a bad guy, that they're dumb or lazy or, or mean, then we can justify our anger and fortify our arguments. We villainize. So when we escalate a simple disagreement becomes a runaway train that's almost impossible to get back on the tracks again. Escalate. A second approach some of us take to conflict is to abdicate. We abdicate when we withdraw from the conflict. And sometimes we get quiet and, and passive, like Liz in the drama we watched a moment ago. She obviously didn't like the idea, but didn't want to say too much other than to mumble under her breath. That's called passive-aggressive behavior. And withdrawing is, is what, what Gabby was doing when she threw her hands up and, and just walked out of the room for a while. When we abdicate, when we walk away, it eliminates the tension, but it doesn't resolve anything. It smolders, waiting for a chance to burst into flame. So, we escalate, we abdicate, sometimes we triangulate. So, instead of confronting the person we're having a difficulty with, we complain about it to someone else. We go this way with our conflict. Maybe we're hoping to draw them on our side, or we're hoping they'll talk to them about the thing we're afraid to talk to them about. Have you ever done that before? Triangulating doesn't usually happen in the room, although Liz is beginning to do it with her under-the-breath comments. Triangulation usually happens after the meeting, in the hallway, in the parking lot, at the break room, something like that, triangulating. And finally, sometimes we placate. Placating means doing whatever we have to do to make the conflict go away. And so we apologize, even if we're not really sorry, or we don't think we did anything wrong. Or we pretend to agree with someone when we really don't. It's kind of what Alice was doing in this little drama. She feels sick about the way the whole thing's going, but she says, there'll be another retreat next year. 
Or the pastor who suggests that they just move on and get on with the next topic. He doesn't want to deal with this, this one. Let's put it off till next week. The problem with placating is that the other person never has a chance to face their issues. And the relationship never has a chance to get to a better place. Any of these sound familiar? Remember, no elbow throwing. This is this way. Which of these behaviors do you tend to resort to when you find yourself in a season of conflict? None of them are very satisfying. None of them are very uh, productive. That's why we call it the tunnel of chaos. But here's the thing. If you want to get to Logan Airport, you have to go through a tunnel. Now, I know, I know, there's probably a back way, but please don't tell me about it. You get the idea, all right? <laughs> if you want to get to the airport, you got to go through a tunnel. And if you want to get to true community, you have to enter into the tunnel of chaos. But when you do, you don't want to resort to these behaviors because they don't, they don't get you anywhere. What we want to do is to navigate. You want to navigate the tunnel of chaos. Find a way through it that gets you to a better place. And that's what Paul is asking Euodia and Syntyche and the whole community to do. And that's what he would be asking us to do as well when we come to seasons of conflict, is to come together with a resolve to find our way through this. Because if we don't talk it out, we will act it out. And so he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. That's a very powerful little phrase. I don't think I appreciated it fully until this time around. First, he says, agree with each other. Now, it could sound as though Paul is asking them simply to, to, to come to the same conclusion about something. Decide who's right, both agree on it, and move forward. But that's not really what he's saying. And that expression, agree with each other, is really an unfortunate translation of this verse. The literal translation is more like, have the same mind as each other. Have the same mind as each other. And that's an expression Paul uses all through this letter to the Philippians. In fact, he used it back in chapter 2. We looked at it a few weeks ago. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. That's the word. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So when Paul asks these two women to agree with each other, he's not asking them to have the same opinion on some issue. He's asking them to have the same mindset, to have the same attitude. He's asking them to agree to put one another first. Agree to have the same love. Agree to be one in spirit and in purpose. And when he asks them to agree with each other in the Lord, in the Lord, he's reminding them of what else he said back in chapter 2. Your attitude or your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And if you remember in that passage, Paul goes on to describe how Jesus emptied himself. Emptied himself of rights and privileges. He humbled himself. He became obedient. He took the form of a servant. He was made like us. Remember we walked down the staircase as he emptied himself of all those rights and privileges in order to serve and save us. And that's what Paul's asking these women to do. And that's what he's asking us to do when we find ourselves in time of conflict. Instead of getting up on a high horse and arguing for our way, our opinion, we descend and we humble ourselves and we put others ahead of ourselves. 
Now, do you see how liberating this is? We don't have to agree with each other about everything. We don't have to. Predestination or free will? Traditional or contemporary? Young earth, old earth? Republican, Democrat? Egalitarian, complementarian? We don't have to agree on all those things. What we have to agree on is to be in Christ together around those things. What we have to agree on is to, is to put the interest of the community ahead of our own particular perspective or opinion. That's the first thing we learned on this journey all the way back on the first Sunday in September. A true community is gospel-centered. It's focused on the life, death, resurrection, and coming again of Jesus Christ. The, the authority of God's word, salvation by faith alone. The, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead. Those are the essentials of our faith. That's what we build our community around. That's what we find our unity in. Paul's not calling for uniformity. He's calling for unity around these things. Amen. We spoke about it again a couple of weeks ago. This is the one thing that we come together around to become more like Christ in our unique way and to help others around us become more like Christ in their unique way. If we're coming together around that, if we're putting other people ahead of ourselves, if we're humbling ourselves, then it's, we're free to agree and disagree in the Lord. And I am so thankful that this has been Grace Chapel's mindset from the very, very beginning, to major in the majors and minor in the minors, to focus on our common commitment to the good news of Jesus Christ, to living and sharing that message with the wider world, and on these other issues, to agree sometimes to disagree with each other in the Lord and to test and challenge and stretch each other to drive ourselves to the Scripture and to prayer and to humility so that in the end, we, we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, here's a really cool thing. I did a little more research into M. Scott Peck's work, and you know what he calls this third phase of community building? Emptiness emptiness. It's the same word, the Greek word, Paul uses to describe what Jesus did when he emptied himself of his rights and privileges in order to serve and save us. Peck is saying the only way to navigate competing personalities and interests is to let go of your need to be right. Let go of your need to win. Let go of your need to have things go your way all the time. He doesn't mean emptying yourself of your opinion or your preference, or your style, or your culture. He just means emptying yourself of the need to have it your way all the time. I was talking to a church consultant this week. He's, uh, he's been serving churches in New England and even around the country and the world for 20-some years. Churches in all kinds of transition and crisis and things like that. And we began we talking about conflict in the church. And he said in all his years, and working with probably 100 and more churches over the years, he said, conflict in the church almost never comes down to conflict, to doctrine or sin. He said, it's almost always a matter of power, ego, or control. Almost all the time. So I'd like to name this third phase. If Bill Hybels can name the second phase, the tunnel of chaos, I'm going to name the third phase. And I'm going to call it the valley of emptiness. The valley of emptiness. If we want to get from pseudo-community to true community, we have to enter into the tunnel of chaos 
and then walk through the valley of emptiness and get to a better place. And walking the valley of emptiness means giving up your need to be right, to win, to have it your way. In the words of one Christian peacemaker, it means to approach your enemy with your heart in your hand, to empty yourself of those things that feel most important to you, most personal to you, offer them to your neighbor in love. And so walking the valley of emptiness means instead of escalating a conflict by raising our voice and venting our anger, we will lower our voices and be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Remember the little thing we looked at about how things get escalated just like that? Happens all the time. Well, you know what happens when one person manages to do this? This person calms down and they, and they, and they can finally meet. The valley of emptiness means giving up my need to do this and to listen and wait and, and hear. Walking the valley of emptiness means that instead of thinking the worst about another person, I'll think the best about them. I will give them the benefit of the doubt. Walking the valley of emptiness means that instead of abdicating in a time of conflict, of passively withdrawing and pulling away, I will, I will move toward that person. I will engage that person until we find a way forward together. Walking the valley of emptiness means instead of triangulating, dragging someone else into the conflict, or using someone else against the person, I will go directly to the person I'm having a problem with. If I need to bring someone, I will, but we'll go together and have a conversation with that person and work it out together. Walking the valley of emptiness means instead of placating each other with shallow apologies or pious promises to pray about it, that we'll listen and understand and empathize with each other so that we can offer a sincere apology if we have to, or agonize together in prayer and conversation until God makes the way clear for both of us. Now, none of these things are easy. They don't come naturally. But if by God's grace we can, we can approach conflict in this way, we can find our way to relationships that are deeper and truer and more beautiful than we ever dreamed possible. That's what God has in mind for us. We, we have the mind of Christ and we become more like Christ as individuals and as a community. And so that's our lesson for this week. When we come together in times of conflict, we find unity and maturity in Christ. When we come together, even in times of conflict, we can find unity and maturity in Christ. We become the people in the church God wants us to be. And so it turns out that conflict is not only inevitable in the life of the church, conflict is indispensable. We have to confront it. God sometimes allows us into seasons of conflict in order to shape and form and make us more like Christ. Well, if you've been with us for a few, few weeks, you know that we've been using that Beatles song, Come Together, as a kind of intro set-up theme song for this series. Now, if you ever listen to it, it's a pretty ridiculous song. Juju eyeballs and toe jam football. <laughs> I mean, no one really knows what that song is all about. There are all kinds of theories. Some people just chalk it up to a drug-induced jam session. 
One story has it that it was meant to be a, a campaign theme song for Timothy Leary's run for governor of the state of California, which came to an end when he was arrested for drug possession, but that's another story. <laughs> an interesting theory is that this is, so, this is a song about the Beatles themselves. Each verse describes one of the four Beatles and their desire, their need to be the centerpiece of the band. Come together right now over me. Well, who knows, really? Whatever the case, the irony is that this band that, that wrote this song, Come Together, managed, in fact, to come together and to do some of the most creative, influential uh, music in, in history. They, they were able to come together, but they weren't able to stay together. They had a remarkable run, but it didn't even last a decade. There are all kinds of reasons that might have happened, but certainly some of it has to do with ego and power and control and the need to have my own way or do my own thing. Well, by God's grace, Grace Chapel has had a remarkable run for nearly 70 years now. And I am so grateful for the unity God has granted to this congregation over many, many years, through many, many changes, and many, many challenging issues. And as I said, I don't sense any particular challenges coming our way right now, but I do believe that if we want to continue to go deeper and closer and wider in Christ, as we spread out among our campuses around the city, as we minister to a variety of generations, as we become more diverse, culturally, and as we face the challenges our culture is throwing our way, we will certainly at times disagree with each other, disappoint each other, and maybe drive each other crazy. And that's okay. It's part of the journey. My prayer is that by God's grace, we might navigate from pseudo-community into the tunnel of chaos walk through the valley of emptiness and find our way to the good, true, and beautiful community God created us for, for our own sake, for His glory, and for the need of the world around us. Let's pray. My guess is the Lord has spoken to each of us in one way about some conflict in our lives or some tendency we have when we approach conflict. Maybe that a uh, conflict you're involved with right now. So let's take a moment of quiet reflection, inviting the Lord to speak to us and show us a way forward. Lord, as always, your word has spoken to us with clarity and impact. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, revealing areas that need to be confronted and changed and brought to you. Lord, if there are things that we need to say or do towards someone in the life of this community or someone in our circle of relationship, pray that you might give us the grace and the courage, the humility to do that. 
pray that when we find ourselves in times of conflict with each other, that, that we will have the mind of Christ, humility and grace, kindness and forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for the unity you've granted this church for many, many decades, and pray that it might be the case for many, many decades more. In your name we pray, amen.